Grace has given me the opportunity to truly study God's Word and apply it to my life. I came to know the Lord at the beginning of college and through community and Bible studies at Grace, I've grown more in Him each year. Without Dulos, I would not be where I am today in my walk with the Lord. I've loved being involved in growth groups and servant teams at Grace. Through studying and understanding deep truths about the Lord's Word. Grace has given me the opportunity to develop my relationship with Christ while in school. I've experienced His love through His people. I was challenged to ask myself, how can I make everything that I do a part of God's kingdom purposes? I've been able to find people who will grow and test and encourage and strengthen me. I've been able to plug into a community of believers that I can grow alongside. I learned to study the Bible for myself in a way that's deepened my relationship with the Lord. The Lord has really given me so many opportunities just to grow closer and walk with Him. The Lord captured my heart for His glory. I love that through discipleship we can be built up in Him and sent out as lights in this broken world. I'd be in a much different place if it weren't for some of the people at Grace who have helped show me how to love the Lord and pursue Him. It has been so valuable to me to learn from older girls' examples. I felt really inadequate with my walk in the Lord, but my leader really pushed me for more. I've seen so clearly how honest discipleship is necessary for growth. I'm able to see the power and truth of discipleship firsthand. I think it'd be really selfish of me to take what I've learned and not pass it on to others, and so that's kind of why I've taken the decision to disciple younger guys. I'm now passing on things I've learned to others. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to pour into other girls. Few things make me happier than pouring into the lives of students here at Texas A&M. I am one of 50,000 students in Bryan College Station. I am one. One. I am one. I'm one of 50,000 students. 50,000 students in this area. 50,000. 50,000 students. In the Bryan College Station area. When I graduate, I want to go to med school. I'm studying recreation, parks, and tourism sciences. Communications. I'm studying to be a civil engineer. I am a special education major. I studied biology. And I want to impact the world for Christ. I want to impact the world for Christ. I want to impact the world. I want to impact the world for Christ. For Christ. I want to impact the world for Christ. Parents, we want to thank you for the privilege of entrusting your students to us. And we want you to know that ministry of students is not one ministry and a long list of ministries for us, but reaching out to the campus really is central to our identity as a church. Uh, We want to be a church that is about the Great Commission. We don't want to be a church that is focused on ourselves. We want to make disciples of all nations. And we have discovered that reaching the campus is one of the most effective ways to reach the world. Your kids come here and they have values that they have brought from home. And Largely, they keep those values, but they test them. They have to make a decision. Will they continue to live for things that are really valuable and important? Will they live for eternal values? Will they live for themselves? Here at the university, they make decisions that will affect them in the course of their lives for the rest of their lives. And when they can make a decision to live for Jesus Christ for the rest of their lives, it literally changes the world. They come here, and they become trained and equipped. They go out, they become leaders in business and in the community, in, in uh, education, in science, in government, in the family. Literally, we have had tens of thousands of students who've come through these doors. We have been able to share Christ with them. We've been able to disciple them and mentor them and send them out and see them impact the world for Jesus Christ. And frequently, I have parents say to me, how can we help? How can we help? Well, I want to tell you a few ways you can help. First, you can pray. 
Uh, as mentioned by our students on the video, there are 50,000 students at Texas A&M. There are another 10,000 at Blinn. Uh, we have several thousand that come through our doors, but there are so many more that we have not reached. We, we, are, we are now joyfully inundated with students. Look around you. You may have noticed there's a student or two sitting in the audience with you. On any given Sunday during the school year, we are about 50% students here. At our Southwood campus, we have about 70% students. And so it is our desire, it is our, our dream, really, that we would have the opportunity and the capacity to present the gospel to every student that comes to Bryan College Station. Be our desire that God would allow us to open up other sites so that we could bring more students in, so that we could equip them and connect them with godly families. And so you could pray for us that God would expand our capacity to reach the campus and consequently to reach the world. Now, you could pray for us that we would become mature so that we have something to offer. You pray for us that God would protect us from Satan's attacks, protect our families so that they can actually be models for your students. Pray for us in that. Uh, You can also participate with us financially. Frequently, parents will want to participate financially. We've given you some info in this little brochure that you were handed on the way in. Uh, There's a link to our website. You can find out about that there. But even better, join us for lunch today, free lunch. And I promise you that uh, it won't be as crowded as the restaurants in town. I mean, even it's not just Luby's. Like, Luby's will be crowded, but but every restaurant is going to be packed. If you don't know what it's like on a Sunday here, parents weekend, it's going to be crazy. You probably noticed it yesterday if you tried to take your son or daughter, out to eat. So come join us, hear more about uh, what we're doing, what we're thinking for the future. With that, I want you to dive into the word with me. Turn with me to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. We got started last week in Jonah chapter 1, kind of laid the framework for the book. One of the things we observed beginning chapter 1, verse 1, is that Jonah was from a small town, Gath-Hefer, in the northern kingdom. Israel had been broken into two kingdoms, one called Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Jonah prophesied to the northern kingdom. He lived in the northern kingdom, and he was told by God to go to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Nineveh was a wicked city. The Assyrians were wicked people. They were the most powerful nation on earth at that time, and they were the greatest threat to Israel's existence. And so Jonah didn't want to go. He didn't want to give them a warning that God was about to judge because he was afraid they might in fact repent and then God wouldn't destroy them. And he wanted them destroyed. So instead of taking the 550-mile journey across the desert to Nineveh, Jonah got on a boat and he went toward Tarshish. He went in the opposite direction. He went to the furthest known point of land, away from the will of God. God said to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, but instead Jonah went down to Joppa. And he went down into the boat, and then he went down into the sea, and then he went down into the fish. Jonah is in the pit. Jonah is in the worst place he's ever been in in his life. And yet he realizes through this experience that God is actually using his suffering to deliver him. That his distress is actually the grace of God in his life. I want you to read with me, beginning in chapter 1, verse 17. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. 
I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you. With the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now, I grew up in church, I grew up in Sunday school, and the image in my mind of Jonah in the belly of the fish was something more like Geppetto and Pinocchio in Monstro. You know, he's got his table and chair, he's got a lamp, he's got a candle, he's got food, he's even got his goldfish there, he's got a bed to sleep in, he's got all the comforts, although he's trapped inside a fish. That's kind of how I envisioned Jonah in the fish. And then as I got older and I read it, and in particularly this, this phrase in verse 10, that the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land, I thought, you know, probably... It wasn't such a pleasant experience to be trapped inside of a fish for three days and three nights. It's quite likely that Jonah's appearance was radically changed by the end of that experience. He was probably shriveled up and bleached white. He was probably quite hideous. It was probably an extremely, extremely uncomfortable three days and three nights. Jonah describes it, in fact, as uh, distress. But what he learns is God's distress is actually God's deliverance. I want you to read with me again verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. Uh, That word for distress is literally a, a tight place. In the Psalms, when you are experiencing the blessing of God, it's described as a broad place. The opposite of the broad place is the tight place. Jonah says, I was in distress. And then he uses vocabulary of death. He said, I went down into the sea. The sea was known as the the place of chaos. That's where chaos ruled and reigned. He said, I went down into the, the pit. The pit and Sheol was the place of the dead. Jonah's saying, I was moving toward death. Seaweed was wrapped around me. Billows were overflowing me. I was drowning. Literally, he says, I was fainting away, which means my life was ebbing away from me. And then the fish he pictures as, as, a, as a tomb, a tomb within the place of the dead. Jonah says, this was my situation. And yet I acknowledged this is from God. These horrific experiences that I'm going through right now are actually the grace of God in my life. This is deliverance. One of the important themes that you will pick up on as we work our way through Jonah is that God is in control. Read with me again verse 17. It says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. God was in charge. God appointed the fish. God brought Jonah into a distressful situation in order to deliver him. 
In Psalm 51, King David is confessing his sin. Psalm 51, David had been brought to the point of humility and repentance before God. Remember, he had sinned with Bathsheba. He had committed adultery, and then he had tried to cover his tracks by having her husband put to death. Bathsheba had become pregnant, but then the child had died. David was in horribly distressing circumstances. And he prayed this prayer before the Lord. He said, purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Not surprisingly, David employed again this figure of God as the shepherd. It's one of his most favorite figures of speech. God is the shepherd. And what a shepherd would do when a shepherd had a sheep that was straying constantly is he would use his rod and staff to guide that sheep back into the flock. But if the rod and the staff didn't work and that sheep continued to wander off, putting itself in danger, moving toward cliffs, moving away from the flock so that it might be attacked by a wild animal, if it continued to put itself in dangerous positions, then the shepherd would take that sheep and it would break a leg. It would break a leg and then it would bind the leg and bandage the leg and then it would pick the sheep up and carry the sheep until the leg was healed. David says, God, you have broken my legs but I acknowledge that that was a gift from you because I was moving away from you and I was destroying my life through my own choices. And God, you have stepped into my life and intervened. Thank you, God. But now would you bring healing? Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. It's a beautiful statement by C.S. Lewis. He said, we are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. True. God, we know you'll do the best in our lives. We've reached that point of awareness, but we're wondering how painful will that be? I have an older sister, and when we were growing up, she wanted to learn how to catch a ball, but she couldn't. She just couldn't do it. Every time my dad would throw her the ball, she'd turn her head. You know, so the ball would hit her in the chest, hit her in the face, hit her in the leg. She just, she'd just turn her head, turn her head, turn her head. But she wanted to learn how to catch a ball. All the other kids knew how to catch a ball. And so she practiced and practiced and practiced with my dad. Could never learn, could never learn. So finally he devised a way to teach her how to not move her head, but to catch the ball. So what he did is he stood her in the corner with her back all the way in the corner and her head wedged in the corner. And then he took a ball, not a, not a baseball or a softball, right? But he took a ball and he threw it right at her face. She couldn't turn her head, she had to reach up. Well, she kept trying to turn her head, and the ball would hit her in the face. And, you know, I, it, I didn't actually get to witness this. Um, I was told about this actually years later. My dad told me about, about this. My sister confirmed it. And my dad said was that um, as they went through this process, both of them were crying. And dad said it was harder on him even than it was on her. She was determined. But it was horribly difficult. That's how our Heavenly Father feels. When He has to step into our lives, He has to intervene in our lives and break our legs because we've moved from Him. It grieves Him deeply. But He loves us too much to let us run and run and run. That's what God is doing in the life of Jonah, His prophet. He's chasing Him down. 
Psalm 119, verse 71, the psalmist wrote, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. That's a hard prayer to pray, isn't it? It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. When you are suffering, do you pray? When you're suffering, how do you pray? Is it the prayer of anger? God, get me out now. Is it bargaining? God, if you get me out, then I will do what you tell me to do. Obviously, Jonah did not compose this prayer. He wasn't sitting at a table like Geppetto with a lamp inside. He composed the prayer later. But what you notice in this prayer is it's rich with the imagery of the Psalms. And it's not a lament Psalm. It's not a Psalm of anger. He, he is not cursing anyone. He's not cursing God. He is giving thanks. It's a Psalm of thanksgiving. He's acknowledging God's grace in the midst of his distress. Now, some of you know my history. I grew up moving around quite a bit, uh, mostly in upstate New York. That was, that was home for me. That's where all my friends were. Uh, that's where I felt like I, I fit in. But at the end of eighth grade, my dad took a job in Michigan. We'd lived in Michigan before, so we knew a few people, but we moved to a town where I didn't know anybody. So I started ninth grade knowing no one. And it was a really, really hard year. My dad's job did not work out. It was extremely stressful. I, I finished that year. We were just nine months there. At the end of the nine months, my dad had to leave that job, but he didn't have another job. And we looked and searched. He took a consulting job back in Washington, D.C., and so my mom and I went back to New York, and I thought, this is great. We lived with friends, but I thought, this is great, because New York is the promised land. Now, I know you're from Texas, you know better, but, but here's the point. Right? For me, that's where, that's where I knew everyone. I had friends. I was popular. I'm thinking, this is, what I, this is what I wanted. God had caused me to suffer for a year there in Michigan, but now here I am. I'm moving back amongst my friends. But when I got back, I realized all my friends were moving in a different direction. You know, they had started kind of down this path, but now they were, they were moving in a very different direction. They were getting heavily into drug use. They were becoming very promiscuous. And during that year when I was really stressed and suffering, God began to, to, to tweak at my heart and draw me. And there was something in me I wanted to know God. I was beginning to want to know him for myself. Not because I'd been raised in a Christian home. And so I got a couple months back in what I thought was the promised land for me. And I realized this is not what I want. God miraculously gave my dad a job at Texas A&M University. There you go. I came down here and for me it was the promised land. I got Christian friends the week that I moved here. I literally, literally. I'd never had Christian friends I'd never had Christian friends. Actually, it's interesting. I, my, uh, my young life leader knocked on my door yesterday. He's got a son who's here in college right now, and he was here for Parents Weekend. And he knocked on my door, and we got to talk yesterday. And I, you know, I wanted to just tell his son, you may be sitting out here, I, you have no idea the impact that your dad had on my life. He showed up at my door the first week I was here, brought me to club. I had Christian friends. I had this funny little New York accent. They made me stand up and lead singing and worship so they could make fun of me, but I didn't care. You know, I didn't care. I began to grow and I began to long to make my life count for eternity. Now, once I had moved through it, I could look back and say all of that hardship, 
God used to move me to a good place. God loved me too much to leave me in a bad place. And so through, through hardship, he moved me to where I needed to be. Okay, and that's what Jonah realizes through this circumstance of being swallowed by the fish. He realizes that God is actually rescuing him through distress. Second, God rescued Jonah through inescapable honesty. Read with me again in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 7. It says, While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. See, something had to change in Jonah. Jonah had to acknowledge that it was Jonah that had moved away from God, that Jonah had sinned. And what he learns through this process is, first, that sin is foolish. Sin is foolish. Notice what he says here, verse 8. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. You read that passage and you say, well, why does Jonah bring up idolatry? It's not as if he went into the belly of the fish and he set up a temple with statues and idols. What's the point? Well, the point is that Jonah had become an idolater. In Jonah's running from God, Jonah himself had become an idolater. And we hear that phrase idolatry, we think, well, I don't really connect with that because I don't have small statues in my house that I bow down before. I don't burn incense to them. But biblically speaking, idolatry is a much broader concept. Idolatry is essentially anything that I give my heart to. I say, I have to have that thing to make my life rich and full and satisfying and complete and fulfilling. If I don't have that, I don't have enough. Let me illustrate from the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul wrote, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Paul says greed is idolatry. Greed in Greek is literally to have more. What I have right now is not enough. I must have more than what God has given me. Paul says that's idolatry. That's idolatry. Similar concept is related in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3. The Lord said to Ezekiel, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts. Don't think of idols just as the statues that sit in a temple. These men have set up idols in their hearts. Though we do not face a pantheon of false gods like the Israelites did, we face pressures from a pantheon of false values, materialism, love of leisure, sensuality, worship of self, security, and many others. Idolatry may be something that most of us can't relate to unless we include life goals that revolve around something other than God himself. What is the object of our affections, our efforts, our attention? Where does the majority of our time go? On what do we spend the greatest amount of our resources? These are the things that have become our idols. Or as Timothy Keller said, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I will will feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. What do you worship? 
The vocabulary that Jonah uses is, is quite interesting, actually. Verse 8, he says, those who regard vain idols, the phrase in Hebrew is literally empty vanities. Empty vanities. They're a vapor. They're not strong. They're not powerful. They're not enduring. An idol must be something of my own creation, so it can't be stronger than I am. If I create it, I can't create something that is greater than I am, more powerful than I am, wiser than I am. If it is to deliver me, it's, to, it's still contingent upon me. It is powerless, except insofar as I have power and I don't have power to rescue myself from the hardships of life. It's fleeting. It will not last. So an idol is literally an empty vanity. It's a breath. It's a vapor. It's nothing. I found a quote by uh, Dave Navarro a few years ago, um, and actually I'm throwing it in because he was, the, he was the guitarist for Red Hot Chili Peppers, right? And so I know students, you won't remember him, but your parents will. So this is a parents' weekend, <laughs> a parents weekend illustration. He said, I was going through a rough time with my relationship and I began to cry. I looked in the mirror and caught a glimpse of myself whimpering like a baby, wearing a shirt that said, I am God. That put a lot of things into perspective. Yeah, I guess. If I am God, I am in trouble. Jonah acknowledges, I've become an an idolater, and idolatry is foolishness. Second lesson he learns, sin is treachery. Again, verse 8. Those who regard empty vanities or vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Jonah uses here the vocabulary of marriage. God pictures our relationship with him like marriage. He's like the groom, taking the initiative, chasing down his bride. Humanity is the bride, turning and responding and saying yes. The moment that we say yes to God's pursuit, when we say, God, I believe Jesus died for my sins, the the moment that happens, we enter into what the Bible describes by way of analogy as, as a marriage covenant. And in that covenant, God is always faithful. That is the nature of God. Even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful. The reason that we are secure in our eternal destiny is not because of anything we do, but because God is faithful. We are not. We are not. We, we, we vacillate. We are unreliable. Sometimes we say yes to God, and sometimes we run as far away as we can. And when we're doing that, the proper response is to repent. In Hebrew, the word repent means literally turn. It simply means turn. Turn back toward God. Turn away from idols. Turn. Turn to God. And it may be that for the first time in your life, you you need to turn to God. Maybe you never have turned to him before. Maybe you have always relied upon yourself. And you say, someday I'll stand before God and I will let God know I deserve to be here. Because God, I'm better than most people and my good outweighs my bad. In fact, I've done so many good things. But that's not how God evaluates. God says there must be a payment for the debt of your sin and all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Who has paid your debt? Maybe you need to turn for the first time to Jesus Christ and say, God, I believe, I believe Christ paid the debt of my sins. I don't bring you anything. I don't come because I deserve to be here. I come because Jesus paid it all. 
Or maybe you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you are running. Maybe a large area of your life, it may be just a small area of your life. But you've turned away and you said, you know, I, I can make life work better my way. And this morning, God is calling out to you through the book of Jonah and he's saying, just turn. When you turn, you know what you discover? God is right there. Read with me Jonah chapter 2, verse 4. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Jonah turns and he looks again. He looks again toward God. And what he sees is a renewed perspective on the character of God. God rescues Jonah by refreshing and renewing Jonah's understanding of who God is and God's essential character. Because he has misunderstood and misrepresented God in his mind and his heart by running away from God and pursuing idols. What does he learn? First, God is everywhere. God is everywhere. Jonah prays from the belly of the fish and God hears. The chaos of the sea is not a barrier to God. The distance is not a barrier for God. God is not a regional God or a local God. God is the God of the sky or the heavens and the earth. He is a God of the seas and the dry land. He is the God of everything. He is the God, as Psalm 139 says, that we cannot flee from. Though we go to the east or the west, we go to the north or the south, whether we go up or down, whether we hide in darkness or we're in the brightness of day, there God is. God is everywhere. And so Jonah acknowledges, I cannot escape from the inescapable God. And so he turns. Second, he learns that God is holy. God loves his prophet so much that he disciplines his prophet. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, no discipline for the moment seems to be joyful, but sorrowful. But afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who submit to the hand of a good and gracious heavenly father. But he will discipline his children. In fact, the Bible tells us God disciplines his own children even more severely than he disciplines those who are not in his family. Years ago, I read a story about a dad who walked into a park and he saw two boys. They were, they were throwing rocks at a car. And he grabbed one of the boys and he spanked him. This other man walked up. He said, well, how can you just spank one boy? And he said, well, only one boy is my son. Only one boy is my son. God reaches out and he grabs that prophet and grabs him pretty severely because God is holy and because God loves his prophet. God is unchanging. Chapter 2, verse 7. While I was fainting away, while life was ebbing away from me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah understands and acknowledges that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. But God, in a sense, inhabited his temple in a very special place. The point is this. God hasn't moved. And when Jonah prays, God is where God has always been. God is unchanging. Our great hope is that God is Unchanging. His attitude toward us is always the same. He does not change. Several years ago, I had a friend who left his wife and his kids. A couple of us went to meet with him and he said, all my Christian friends have abandoned me. We said, no, we're still right here. 
we haven't moved, but you have run away. And God hasn't changed. God hasn't moved. He is exactly where he has always been. He is in his temple. He is on his throne. And he is waiting for you to turn. Fourth, God is powerful. Verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish. And it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. God appointed the fish. God commanded the fish. God is in charge. That is the theme of this entire book. The experience wasn't pleasant, but it was exactly what Jonah needed. And then fifth, God is good. Read with me again verse 2. Jonah said, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. This, this comes out very vividly in, in the Hebrew poetry. It reads literally, I cried, you heard. Okay? The verbs are juxtaposed right at the beginning of this phrase. I cried, you heard. God was waiting for Jonah to turn. I cried, you heard. There was no hesitation. God was waiting. The most vivid illustration of the nature of God as our father that we have is that of the prodigal son. Prodigal son left. The father hadn't moved. The prodigal son left and he, he was squandering his wealth. He was wasting his life. He was living foolishly and destroying himself. And every day the father would go out and he would wait. And he would wait and he was longing for his son to return. And when he saw his son on the horizon, what did the father do? He went out to the son. He went to him. That is the definition of grace. God initiates with us when we are broken. God went to us by giving us his son. The father goes to the son, but the father has a second son, doesn't he? He has a self-righteous older brother. And where is he? He is also outside. Remember, they're having a feast. They're having a party for celebrating that the younger son has returned. And where is the older son? He's outside. What does the father do? He goes out to him, right? The father initiates with both sons. Why? Because God is good. The message of the book of Jonah is that God loves his creatures. God loves Jonah. God also loves the Ninevites. God loves people. So why run? Would you pray with me? Perhaps this morning you are running from God. I want you to take the next few moments and turn. And know that you will find God where he always is. He is holy, he is righteous, he is good. Perhaps you know someone who is running from God. I want you to take the next few moments and pray for that person. Perhaps you have never turned to God for the first time. I want to encourage you. Take this moment, this opportunity, as God is chasing you down, to turn to God and say, God, I believe in your son, Jesus. Let's take a few moments silently in prayer, and then I will close this. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge it is foolishness to run from you. You are everywhere. It's foolishness to run from you because you are good and your, your plan is best. It's perfect, even when it's painful. We trust you, even when we can't make sense of all the circumstances of our lives. Pray that you would give us faith. Father, I pray for any here who have, who have never trusted your son, Jesus. I pray 
that their hearts would be softened, broken, as your spirit chases. Father, I thank you that you are unchanging. I thank you that you are always holy and always good. I thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus, and you will never take him away. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Parents, again, thank you for coming. Have a great day.